word through Michael, uh, that you'd open our hearts, you'd open our ears, you'd open our eyes just to see what your word has for us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to see each and every one of you this morning. Um, again, we have uh, several folks who are out ill, lots of kids, Templetons and the Bonowitzes, um, for sure. We're, we're a little lopsided this morning. We may have to may lean towards the stage a little bit, but I think we'll be okay. Um, Thursday afternoon, you know, I, we got back from Texas. I got back from Texas yesterday. Thank you for your prayers. Um, had a really good and refreshing and encouraging time with a couple of friends and uh, did a lot of hard work in that process as well. Uh, but Thursday afternoon, uh, my friends got a phone call from a guy that, that he knows that uh, a former neighbor of his had passed away and they wanted my friend to do the funeral. Uh, her name was Ruth and uh, he wasn't overly excited about doing Ruth's funeral. Um, he knew her, used to be a neighbor, um, and actually had done her husband's funeral. But he said, uh, I just, what do you say? She wasn't nice. Nobody liked her. She had, you know, I just, I, it's going to be tough. Um, and he had kind of decided, we spent some time praying about it, and he had a lot of things already lined up on the schedule for Monday, which is when the funeral was going to be. And he kind of thought, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't, because it was about a four-hour trip. And then back, so it would be a whole day gone. And he called his wife, and she said, "You need to do the funeral." Said, okay. Um, so then later on, called back and said, "It's just going to be a graveside." I said, "Why would they do that?" And he said, "Well, no one's going to be there. The only people that will be there will be her family if all of them come. A life, an entire life lived, and." The family didn't want to walk into an empty funeral home, so they're just going to have a graveside. Because they knew, as well as my friend, that no one was going to come and pay their respects to Ruth. The day before that, another man passed away. His name was Howard Hendricks. Um, his funeral is, is uh, next Monday at uh, a church called Saturday, at a church called Stonebriar, which seats... Thousands up in Dallas, and it will be full. Uh, people will fly in from probably all over the world to pay respects to Howard Hendricks. Uh, he taught at Dallas Seminary for 60 years. For 60 years. Um, taught over 10,000 students. Um, and not just taught them, but invested his life in them. Uh, encouraged them to to be men of God uh, and to take seriously the Great Commission uh, and to invest their lives in people. Uh, and that, that church will be full. Um, the difference between two lives, uh, probably the extremes, um, he'll have one of the, the most highly uh, attended funerals of the year probably and, and she will have one of the least. As we think about that, I want to think about two people in our, our text this morning. Um, last week we talked about uh, Judah and Joseph. We compared and contrasted those two people. We're looking at the same text again this morning. 
Um, except this time we're going to look at the two ladies. Uh, now, as we said last week, that message was not just for men. This message is not just for women. But we are going to look at some characteristics that, that they didn't share. And then think about that, how, how that applies to our lives in just uh, one particular area this morning. Um, we read some of the text last week. I just want to read a, a couple of verses that kind of uh, epitomize what's going on. Um, in chapter 38, beginning in verse 25, we read these words. It was while she was being brought out to be stoned, or to be burned, sorry, that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, as much as I did not give her my son, Sheila. And then we read in chapter 39 about Potiphar's wife. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he, my husband, has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight. Um, help us to see uh, you more clearly. Help us to see ourselves more clearly, most of all. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I want to look at four differences between those two gals, and then we'll draw some application from that. Uh, first of all, names. Uh, Tamar has a name. We're given that in the text. And in, in the Old Testament, names were extremely important. Uh, they sometimes would indicate someone's character or sometimes would indicate someone's future. Uh, Tamar is, a, is the word that means a, a date palm. It was a, very, it was a very important tree. <laughs> a lot of sustenance came from that. Um, the date palm had a stature of being important. And Tamar was named that. We see her name appear over and over again in genealogies in the Old Testament and most importantly in a genealogy in the New Testament. She is an ancestor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then there's Potiphar's wife. We don't know her name. Never mentioned. And, and she's never really heard from again. Again, these two chapters side by side, that's not an accident. We have someone whose name we know and who it's repeated over and over again and becomes a part of the lineage of the nation. And we have someone's wife. Known and unknown. Howard Hendricks and Ruth. The next contrast is honor. Passage that we read just a second ago. Despite the fact that Tamar had every right to be bitter, despite the fact that she had every right to be accusatory, right, she was abandoned by her family when her husband died and the brother refused to fulfill his duty to her. And then the father-in-law kind of shunned her and sent her back off to her own family, which was against the cultural norms. 
and then she found herself pregnant. She had every right to accuse pregnant and accuse of doing wrong. She had every right to accuse back. Judah, you've done the same thing I've done. You're just as guilty as I am. She had every right to expose him publicly in front of everybody. But what did she do? It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law. Uh, implication is that, that she didn't make a public spectacle. She sent to him privately and said, just examine these things and, and this, is, this is the father. She didn't expose him. She didn't accuse him. She didn't belittle him in front of his peers. She honored the family even though she was in really serious trouble of being killed. Potiphar's wife, on the other hand, when she didn't get her way, when she's the only one guilty, and she's mad, and she's bitter, and she's angry, she calls the other servants around her, the people who are of little account in the family, and she accuses her husband of wrongdoing. See, he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. It's his fault. It's my husband's fault. And then when Potiphar comes home, then she blames Joseph. Public humiliation, public belittling of a spouse over something that... A spouse didn't do. The third contrast is, is a legacy. We've talked about it a little bit. Tamar became the mother of Perez. And that line continued on down to King David. And that line continued on down to Christ. Because of her actions, whatever we may think of them, and we'll talk about those in a second. Because of her actions... A legacy was left ultimately for you and me. That we might be God's children. That we might participate in the Abrahamic covenant when God promised Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the shore, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then Paul helps us put those pieces together. While we may not be Jewish, we're children of Abraham by faith. It's like Isaac was the child of faith, the child of promise. And we get to participate in that legacy. You may or may not think that, that you want to participate in Tamar's legacy. <laughs> Read her story and the things that she did. You may think, I, I don't know if I want to be a part of that, but hold on. I think you probably will. Potiphar's wife? It's interesting, women in the Bible, what is often concerned most with them is do they have children or not? And it's important, and those things are named and talked about. We don't know that Potiphar's wife had any kids. They're not mentioned. It, we don't see a legacy. Nothing's extended. Nothing goes on. The contrasts are, are very clear. Do you want to be like Tamar? Do you want to be like Potiphar's wife? And you may say, well, I don't want to be like either one of them. 
Which brings us to our last point, uh, doing what's right or, or standing up for our rights. And I want to start with Potiphar's wife first because she had no right to have Joseph and yet that's what she wanted. And that's what she was going to take. And in that process, she destroyed her family. Right? Because Joseph was the blessing to that household. And when she belittles her husband and when she accuses Joseph, the blessing necessarily goes away. She puts her husband in a, in a, in a difficult situation and it seems he knows that. Because what should have happened was that Joseph should have been executed. And instead he puts him in prison. Maybe he knows his wife is lying. Maybe he knows that things are going to get worse because my blessing is gone, but I probably shouldn't make it worse by killing him when my guess is he probably knew he was innocent. But her actions, something that she did not have the right to do, her actions diminished the blessings for her family. So what about Tamar? What about her actions? Prostituting herself? Is that that's an honorable action? Well, it's interesting. <laughs> it was risky. But in that culture, she was given to a man and he died. And so in that culture, she had the right to the next of kin, which Judah obligated to and gave her second, his second son to her. And he died. And she still has the right to the next closest male relative. We talked about last week that Judah said, oh no, two's enough. <laughs> I'm not going to lose another son. I'm not going to lose the last heir. Judah's concerned about the family name. He says, I'm not giving this one to her because then I'll be childless and my wife is dead and the line will die out. And Tamar had the choice. Well, she was sent back to her father's. You know, she could have found someone else to marry at some point in time. She could have just broken ties with those Jews and said, enough with that. But she was the rightful matriarch of the clan at this point in time. It was her right and her responsibility to make sure that that line continued on in that culture. She had every right in the world to Judah's third son. And when she realized that wasn't going to happen, the next closest relative was Judah himself. And it was perfectly in that culture, morally and legally right for her to have him as a husband. But she kind of knew that wasn't going to happen because nobody trusted her. Two husbands, two deaths. And so she took a risk. A calculated risk, but she took a risk. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be a part of this family, even though this family doesn't want me. Even though this family may be scared of me, I'm going to participate in the lineage of this family. And she made a choice. We may look at that and go, that's just really bizarre and weird. But in that culture, 
a risky thing to do, but nothing morally wrong, nothing culturally wrong for a Canaanite. And that step of faith is rewarded in two ways in Scripture. Number one, Judah himself acknowledges that her choice was the correct choice. He says, she is righteous, I am not. And then he gives the reason why she's righteous. It's not because she didn't expose me publicly. It's not what he says. It says, because I did not give her to my son, Shelah. The reason she's righteous is because she sought to preserve the family line and I didn't. Because I was scared. She was scared too. But she did the hard thing. He called himself unrighteous ultimately because he had a lack of concern for the family name. She's righteous because she had a great concern for the family name. So the hard part for us this morning is how do we apply that? <laughs> what do we do as believers, certainly much different than what Tamar did, to make sure that our family name is preserved? To make sure we pass on a legacy? Are we willing to fight for our family the same way Tamar was willing to fight for her family? Are we willing to take risks? Are we willing to put our neck on the line for our family? So, some application. Am I willing to undergo possibly shame, ridicule? Am I willing to sacrifice for the family that God has given me for my spouse, for my kids. It's still fairly vague and nebulous. Let me give you a specific. Am I willing to, to be more mature next week than I am this week by making the decisions I need to make so that I pass on a legacy to my family? Do I need to, to spend more time with God in, in this book and in prayer? That's something that's relatively simple that if we're not doing, we can for those of you who are young and not married and not thinking about passing on a legacy at all, habits are hard to begin as an adult. Ask any adult in this room afterwards. Is it hard to start a habit as an adult? Yeah, because you're busy. Because you've got a wife and you've got kids and you've got a job and trying to squeeze one more thing into that 24-hour period is difficult. But what if you've begun that habit already and it's part of what you do? What if the beginning of the day starts with God? Then when, then, then the issue is, I'm going to add something else, and if God's already an established priority in your life, then you'll figure out how to put other things there. But that will be a, a secure, set time that you do. So I would encourage you and challenge you, those of you who are not married and don't have kids and life is not as crazy as it could be, begin that habit. Carve out that time now. For those of us who are married, we talked uh, several months ago about marriage. I want to remind you of some definitions. 
as we think about leaving a legacy. Just some, some definitions, very simple, just a reminder of what marriage is and what our role as husbands and wives are. Um, marriage is a union between a man and a woman which provides mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. You want to leave a legacy? Live sacrificially towards your spouse. It'll make a difference in his or her life and it'll make a difference in your children's lives as they see that modeled. Specifically, what does it look like for uh, a husband? I think that's first. Headship means taking the primary responsibility to lead the family through sacrifice in a God-honoring direction. We get that from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? Well, he sacrificed for her. Everything. Kind of like Tamar in a sense. The men in her family wouldn't take any responsibility, so she had to. (laughs) She became the one that was willing to sacrifice herself for the sake of the family. Guys, that's our responsibility. Is sacrifice. Ladies, you also have a responsibility as well. Submission is loving, adoring, appreciating, and encouraging... The leadership your husband provides. That's what submission is. It's not doormat. It's I love that my husband leads and I encourage him to do that. Every step along the way. That's a a biblical model of what submission means. To love and encourage the headship that my husband provides. If we think about those things, and those are just real simple definitions that get played out more difficult as life goes on, but that's a starting point in leaving a legacy. But I want to talk about one other kind of family this morning. As I read at the very beginning, 1 Corinthians 12, I want to talk about this family for a moment. What are you willing to do for this family? Because see, in one sense, this this family, the body of Christ, may be a a better example of what we talk about in Genesis 38 than the immediate family. Because Tamar was interested in preserving that covenant family. And in post-resurrection of Christ, that covenant family has become the church. Do you love the church despite the people that are in it? That's a question that we've got to answer. Do you love the church despite the people that are in it? Because sometimes people can be nasty. Sometimes people can be unkind. Sometimes people can hurt your feelings. Sometimes people can say things that you really wish they wouldn't say or do things that you wish they wouldn't do. Sometimes you come to church and you find that there are hypocrites sitting next to you or standing up talking to you. And you go, I'm not going there anymore. But if, if it's orthodox and sound, do you love the church despite the people in the church? Do you love the body of Christ in spite of the fact that the members of the body of Christ are often corrupt? Do you love the bride of Christ despite the fact that she's got stains on her dress? That's the question we've got to answer. Do I love 
Christ Community Church, the local manifestation of the body of Christ, even though there's a bunch of knuckleheads there. And if you think you're, you're not one of those knuckleheads that someone else may be thinking about that of you, right? Just read through the second half of Ephesians sometimes. Read through the Sermon on the Mount sometimes and just see if, if you measure up. See, what's beautiful about that is that every single one of us need the grace and the mercy of God. None of us are exempt from needing the cross of Christ in our lives. So I can't look at someone and say, oh, I'm frustrated at the church and I'm not going anymore because that person will... We, We do the same things. Maybe not in the same severity. Maybe not in the same... or Maybe not as often. But all of us fail. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And all of us have been given grace and mercy from the cross. None of us were worthy to be called the bride of Christ. None of us were worthy to be incorporated into the body of Christ. Do you love the church despite the people in it? But we can flip that around. Do you love the people in the church despite the style of the church? Are you committed to one another regardless of what this looks like? What if we got rid of the guitar and, sorry, Brandon, and got rid of the piano and we moved an organ in, a big pipe organ in here, and it sounded really bad because this room is way too small for a pipe organ. And we, and we started singing only hymns really slow. <laughs> Do you love the people in the church despite your preferences for a style of worship. What if we decided, Bo and Chad and I decided, the best way to reach our community was to start church at 7 a.m. on Sunday morning? Now, you know I'm, I'm going to the extremes here, but I want we need to think about these things. Do you love the people in the church and are you committed to the people in the church that, you know what, I would sacrifice because I love those people even if we started at 7 a.m. Yeah, the wheels are turning in my head too. I really, but I really, ugh, that's, those people are crazy. Yeah, they are. Do you love the people in the church despite the way the church looks, despite the way it functions? As long as we are preaching the gospel, we remain orthodox. Do you love the people in the church? Are you committed to them as your brothers and sisters in Christ? I have no desire to bring an organ into the church and I have no desire to start at 7 a.m., just so you know. But we need to think about those things. There's a lot of other things that are less extreme that people go, I don't like that. That's not my preference on how I would worship. And then we begin to question our, our place. And do I still want to go there? Or do I want to find something that suits my preferences better? Kind of like a marriage. 
sort of. On your wedding day, guys, the, the bride is the perfect bride. And gals, that husband, well, he probably isn't the perfect husband, but, but at least for that day, it, it may seem like he is, right? And then over time, that person changes. Your life changes. Your schedule changes. Something that you thought he or she used to like, he or she doesn't like anymore. Something that he used to do or she used to do, they don't do anymore. Something they used to not do, they now do all the time. I'm going to find somebody else. See, our culture does that. We, we, we're a fast food culture, and if we don't like this, this right, we can do that. And, and not just a fast food culture. We just like choices. I'm guilty of this sometimes. I've said, I wish there were some other places to eat in Andrews. You know how many options? What if everything closed down except Subway? You know how many options you'd have? You know how many choices you would have at Subway? Right, we love choices. And we feel hindered when our choices are hindered. Because we like preferences. And we like to be pleased. And we like to be cared for. And we like to feel comfortable. But what if you're not comfortable? Do you love the people in the local body despite what that may look like on a Sunday morning. See, Christ loves His body despite the people in the body. And He gave everything for us. And Christ loves you individually, every one of you individually, despite what our form looks like. He loves the church and He loves the people in the church. He died for the people in the church. The Father sent the Holy Spirit to us so that we could be one, unified, whole. He calls us His children. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. See, some of you have brothers and sisters, and whether or not they're knuckleheads or not, you can't, you can't unbrother someone. You may disown them, you may not speak to them, but by blood you're always their brother or sister. And that's the language that God uses for us as the body of Christ. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have to look around and we have to ask ourselves, Am I willing to go to such extremes that Tamar went to, culturally acceptable? I don't recommend prostitution for the sake of the body of Christ for any of you. But are we willing to take personal risks that the legacy of our blood family and the legacy of this family gets passed on to other people? See, Howard Hendricks loved the body of Christ. 
back in 1950, he was pastoring a church in Fort Worth, and Lewis Berry Chaper said, I would love for you to teach some classes at the seminary. I don't know, I've got this church, and just come teach part-time, just one class. And what he found was that, that he had a gift, and that he was good at it. And he said one day that the thought hit him that at that time the seminary was really small, I can train ten guys really well who will go out and pastor ten churches really well. Or I can pastor this one church and, and have an impact, and he did. And, and this vision came to him of the impact he could have on the world if I train men to do what they're supposed to do, to love people and shepherd the flock. And he has left a legacy. I would encourage you to, uh, to maybe to, to look up some of the things that, that he's done and kind of just read through the impact that he's had on people. You can go to uh, the DTS website, dts.edu, and there's, there's a, a little story about his life uh, as well as uh, a really, really, really long, if you've got a couple of hours, where people have posted comments about what he's meant to their life. Hundreds of them since uh, he died on Wednesday. I, I encourage you to do that and just think, hmm, what would my life look like if I was, was interested in leaving a legacy? And I trusted in God to do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your love for us, for your love for your church. Thank you for examples like Tamar that we would read and kind of go, she's a little off, and yet, God, you've seen fit to remind us to look carefully at her life because you included her in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior. God, help us in all that we do to model His selflessness, to model His sacrificial love for others. God, we can't do that in our own strength. We won't do that in our own strength. God, we need Your mercy and Your grace every moment of every day. Remind us of, of who we are without You. And then, God, remind us of who we are with You. Your children. Loved and redeemed and justified. Forgiven. Seated in the heavenly places with You already. And then encourage us and challenge us to be the people You've called us to be. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.